0: Welcome to the New Money Review podcast. I'm Paul Amory, editor of New Money Review. There's a rising superpower in the world of money, a country that's cut off from the global financial system, but which is playing an increasingly prominent and disruptive role within it nevertheless. Researchers are almost certain that over the last three decades, North Korea has been behind some of the most audacious and brazen criminal acts in history, These have involved counterfeiting, theft, hacking, bank raids, ransomware, and cyber attacks. The country's skills in these areas have both shocked and impressed the analysts who have studied the country's exploits. North Korea's asymmetric war against Western finance and the internet is intensifying and getting more dangerous. In this episode of the podcast, I'm joined by Jeff White, an investigative journalist a specialist in cybersecurity and the author of a recent book on North Korea called The Lazarus Heist. Listen in for the next 30 minutes for a story that anyone involved in finance, technology, or politics should know about. You can support the New Money Review podcast using Patreon. To find out how to do so, visit our website, newmoneyreview.com, and you'll find a link to Patreon in the right hand column. Jeff, welcome to the New Money Review podcast. Could you start by telling listeners a bit about yourself and the book you've recently written on North Korea?
1: Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So my name is Jeff White. Uh, I'm an investigative journalist. I cover technology and organized crime um, for various outlets, BBC, Sunday Times. I was with Channel 4 News for a while. And I've just written a book, which is called The Lazarus Heist, which is all about North Korea and how North Korea became a computer hacking superpower. How did you get into uh, North Korea as a subject? It's interesting. So I published a book a couple of years ago, um, which is called crime.com, which is sort of everything you ever wanted to know really about cybercrime, but were afraid to ask. And one of the chapters in that book was about North Korea, uh, and and a particular hack that North Korea's accused of carrying out, which is a hack on Bangladesh Bank. That's the National Bank of Bangladesh, where they tried to get away with a billion dollars. It's not only an incredible story, because it's almost as though north korea's hackers have watched a kind of oceans 11 type heist movie and decided to do the same thing in cyberspace but also what it pointed to and the reason i wanted to include it in the book was it, it points to this coming together of nation state hackers government hackers and organized cybercrime, and in some cases organized street level crime and those two things coming together and the sort of arch example really was that uh, was north korea and the hacks that they were accused of, of carrying out so that then became that chapter of the book then became a podcast called The Lazarus Heist on the BBC World Service, uh, which I did with a woman called Jean Lee, who was a journalist who'd worked in North Korea for for many years. Um, and that uh, podcast, The Lazarus Heist on the BBC, was then turned into this book, The Lazarus Heist. So I've got deeper and deeper into the, the, uh, the tangles of, uh, of North Korean computer hacking ever since. Thank you for that. Uh, that's a very helpful intro. I read your book
0: uh, on holiday in August, and I have to say it's a fantastic read. It's also kind of jaw jaw dropping, um, at many points in the book. Um, I, I don't know if these are the, this is the right word, but the the skill and the the, the foresight that the North Koreans employed. Actually we can we can dig into that a bit in preparing the hack of the Bangladesh Central Bank is quite amazing. I mean, they they really <laughs> had they they took certain steps that enabled them to you know increase the chances of carrying out their hack successfully that really
1: required very deep and thoughtful planning and preparation yeah yeah and long-term planning as well i mean it it was it was at least a year and a half in the planning that raid um possibly more um I, i mean the actual hack on bangladesh bank itself the sort of the straightforward computer hack was pretty um pretty typical um and doesn't actually stand out really it was it was a It's a phishing email, a suspicious email that arrived at Bangladesh Bank. There was an attachment to the email and an employee of Bangladesh Bank opened the attachment and within it was embedded a computer virus. And that is the weapon of choice for computer hacking gangs of all stripes all around the world. That is how they get in. Phishing emails is still their tactic of choice because it it works as it did in the case of Bangladesh Bank. But what's interesting is having hacked into the bank's computer systems, navigated their way across to to the sort of SWIFT system, which is a system banks used to transfer money from one place to another they effectively had the keys to the kingdom at that point but then they stopped for an entire year and what's really interesting is that year i suspect they spent working out how they were going to actually get the money out and away because yes you can hack into a bank and yes you can navigate your way to its payment systems and yes you can pay but who are you going to transfer the money to you know if you transfer it to kim jong-un it's pretty obvious who who's behind the hack so for the next year the north koreans started setting up uh, lining up the money laundering network lining up the bank accounts that they could transfer the money into lining up the people who were going to help them move this money that heavy end of actually moving the money and laundering it was what took them the time and so a year after they'd actually initially hacked into the bank that was when they went for it that weekend when they hacked into the bank and finally transferred the money happened to coincide with um, a number of bank holidays and public holidays and weekends around the world which meant the hackers had a sort of four-day window, five-day window, in fact, in which to get their money out and to move their money. Uh, absolutely incredible, and, and and the timing of it was was razor sharp. Right, and so for those who, uh, I mean, a number
0: of readers, of, uh, listeners in this podcast, will, to this podcast will know how the Swift system works. But for those people who don't, this is supposed to be the, the kind of the top um, and most secure system for transferring money between financial systems in the world, yes. between financial institutions, including central banks in the world. And so uh, to, to get into that and to be able to um, to hack it and to be able to move money um, is quite, a, is quite a f- an exploit, isn't it?
1: Yeah, and, and SWIFT is interesting in that um, the SWIFT system itself, to a certain extent, doesn't have security controls around it, within it per se, um, which is a, a bold statement to make. But what SWIFT... In the case of Bangladesh Bank, what the SWIFT system assumes is that if you're in Bangladesh Bank's computer networks, then you're an employee of Bangladesh Bank, and you can therefore be trusted to use SWIFT. In a way, it wasn't SWIFT's problem, in inverted commas, as to to who was using it. SWIFT just took it for granted. If you're on the SWIFT terminal, you, you must be a bank employee. How else would you be on the SWIFT terminal? Of course, if computer hackers can break in and navigate their way towards the SWIFT terminal, well, then they can transfer the money because the SWIFT system itself isn't going to ask them any security questions or ask them to pass any tests. This has changed. I mean, SWIFT has, since the Bangladesh Bank case, I think SWIFT's done quite a lot of work around this and and work to, to try and harden itself up as a target. But look, fundamentally, there are systems inside every bank, every institution, lots of organizations where they just take it for granted. If you're in the network, you're obviously legit, you're bona fide. Uh, And that's what happened uh, at Bangladesh Bank and, in fairness, a lot of other banks as well. The SWIFT system has been targeted in lots of other banks, often by North Korea, but also by other cybercrime gangs as well. Right, and so that the billion
0: dollars that belonged to the Central Bank of Bangladesh, uh, that was sitting in that central bank's account at the New York Fed, the hackers tried to transfer out about a billion dollars, but in the end they they slipped up. Maybe they made a they made a, a kind of an accidental error that with a with a yeah. word in one of the transfer instructions that caused about nine hundred million to to get stopped. Um, but the rest of the the rest of the money, they then tried to launder through. The philippines and through sri lanka could you explain a bit what they were what they were doing because that's that's a, an incredible story in yeah. itself you know what they were trying to do there
1: well this is the thing so the money laundering aspect of this is fascinating and actually i should declare i'm, I'm, I'm wi- currently writing a book about money laundering and technology that's my next book um partly because i got fascinated by money laundering through this process um the key thing with money laundering is you have to you have to people think it's, it's about getting clean money it's partly about getting clean money but what it's mainly about is making sure the victim and the authorities can't claw back the money. So even if they know that you're the thief, even if they know you've stolen all this stuff, so long as you make it so they can't get it back, you've won as the criminal. So what you're looking to do is to move the money and break the connection between the money and the crime. And in the Bangladesh Bank Job case, uh, the way they did that was using casinos. So they transferred the money to a number of accounts they'd set up in the Philippines. And again, setting those accounts up was part of what took a year to to, to line up. They move the money through those accounts, extract it in cash. And we're talking about, you know, $81 million in cash. This is the weight of a grand piano worth of cash. Um, They then take it to a couple of casinos in the Philippines and they convert it into chips. And they get a bunch of gamblers who may or may not have known the full extent of the criminal scheme they were part of to gamble those chips across the table Um, they win some they lose some if you're good at this kind of thing you can balance you can hedge so you know one player loses the other player wins so you don't actually lose that much money doing this you can actually make remarkably you can make a casino scheme work and recoup most of the money and that's exactly what they did the criminals recouped most of the money and then they spirited away we think to Macau uh, a couple of the companies that organized these junkets were based in Macau. Lots of Several of the key gamblers were also based in Macau. Um, so we think that's where the money ended up. Uh, Macau is a key connection in this because Macau has been, for many years, North Korea's sort of conduit to the outside world. It's where they get people and goods in and out of North Korea is often through Macau. Sri Lanka connection is an interesting one. The bulk of the money, the bulk of this billion dollars they wanted to, to steal was going to go to the Philippines. Um, and by the way, I've talked about the laundering of $81 million there through the casinos. The original plan was to launder over $900 million through the casinos, which would have been a huge operation. It would have taken a year to do that. It's absolutely incredible. They would so have had people sitting sitting in the casino
0: playing yeah. Baccarat. It was the game they were using to try and launder the money and just doing it for days on end. And, oh, yeah. It took, and then I mean, laundering it back into cash and, and,
1: uh, exactly. and taking it out of the system. Right. It, it took about a month to launder the $81 million. Um, And if you're talking about 900 million, then you're talking about it would have taken months and months and months. This side payment to Sri Lanka is an interesting one because of of the 950 million they tried to steal, 81 million goes to the Philippines. As you say, about 900 million vanishes through the mistake. But there's 20 million that goes to Sri Lanka. Uh, And they tried to launder it through a charity in Sri Lanka, um, a thing called the Shalika Foundation, which is a charitable trust in in Sri Lanka. That didn't actually happen because um, an employee in a Sri Lankan bank noticed that this was a very large transaction and also noticed that they'd spelled the word foundation wrong. It was spelled foundation, not foundation. So spelling error managed to cost them $20 million. But the reason that's intriguing, that Sri Lankan connection, is the original plan, we found out, was to put, we think... All of the stolen Bangladesh money through Sri Lanka to wash it all through this charity, to, to issue a check, effectively, a depository transfer check, and to push that money through Sri Lanka. Now, that makes a lot more sense to me because compared to the months you spend at a casino table, getting it all through Sri Lanka and through that charity in one go, in one hit, that makes a lot more sense. So I think Sri Lanka was probably Plan A, and I think the Philippines was Plan B. And when Plan A didn't work out, they went to Plan B. That's my sort of hunch, but uh, obviously You're not right. having spoken to the hackers themselves. Like, uh,
0: yeah, oh, sure. uh, I mean, is it fair to assume that the, the, these people are, are, you know, constantly probing the, the world's financial system, individual financial centres, individual banks, to try and find ways yes. know, to, to, to to get in and then to to exploit those those those, those holes?
1: Yes, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, one of the um, we have, by the way, a second series of the Lazarus Heist podcast, again with myself and my co-presenter Jean Lee coming out in, in October. We think late October, early November, we'll have that ready. And we've just, epi- we've just recorded episode one. And what we deal with there is the hacking of another bank, uh, another uh, uh, Indian continent b- bank, um, this Cosmos Bank in India. Um, and what's interesting there is they, they, they don't use the SWIFT system to get the money out. They actually hack into the ATM system. And they managed to approve um, $11 million worth of transactions around the world. And all of those withdrawals, those ATM withdrawals take place in something like two hours in 29 different countries across the world. It's an astonishing and again, incredibly well-coordinated attack. And what's interesting is the SWIFT system is one thing. Getting your head around that is one thing. Getting your head around how an ATM system works and all of the protocols for all the ATM messaging, that's a whole other kettle of fish. And the North Koreans, it's alleged, did that, that exact thing. They got their heads around an entirely new financial system, an entirely new part of the bank. So they are as you say, constantly probing different bits and always innovating. And I mean, yeah, I don't know whether you want to talk about this, but there's the cryptocurrency stuff they do as well. Incredibly well-versed uh, in crypto. I'd like to come on to cryptocurrency, but uh, there's that 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 um, you know, Money Mule
0: story. That that's a really a military operation, isn't it? They 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 recruited those people to go uh, at up to ATMs in in different Indian cities uh, during particular um, two-hour time window and to withdraw as much as possible. That, that, I mean, there must have been hundreds or thousands of people involved in the, in the operation, and it was done with precision
1: planning. Yeah, exactly right. So it's not just India. I mean, as I say, there's 29 different countries. And what's interesting yeah. about those countries is, you know, you're looking at US, Canada, UK, Turkey, Russia, Japan, they're all in different time zones. So it's not just yeah. that you've got to get everybody the cash points within the two hour window, because for the hackers, they know they've only got a certain period of time where they can penetrate the bank's computer networks and and compromise the ATM system. They know that's a limited time window, so they've got to have everybody braced and ready to go in all of these different countries, in all of their different time zones. So, you know, it might be the middle of the day in America, it might be the middle of the night in Japan. Um, and as you say, this is many, many people. In India, uh, I think the Indian police have made... I'm going to say 18 arrests, I think it is so far. And those are the sort of street-level money mules. They're still trying to work their way up the chain to the sort of kingpins, as it were, of this. But, you know, if you've got 29 different countries and you've got 20 people in each country, do the maths. As you say, that's, that's hundreds of people all out on the streets simultaneously. And you've got to make contact in all those different countries. The North Koreans would have had to have found people in every single one of those countries to make the ATM heist work in all of them. Absolutely astonishing yes um if we go before we come to turn to cryptocurrency I'd like to
0: go back in time to um another episode you recount in your book which is the 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 you know partly successful um attempt by by North Korea in the 1990s to counterfeit a hundred dollar mm. bills and and they got away with this to I mean I think you you'd say that um once they manufactured these bills they they had to they, it cost them about 50 percent of the face value or or more to to, to use them, I mean, you could basically you, 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 the people using the counterfeit bills would, would only buy them for what forty or fifty cents of the dollar. But yeah, how did yeah. they? How did how the hell did the North Korea manage to do that? I mean, it's not uh, these are you know, national currencies uh, with yeah. various
1: security features built in. How on earth did they did they do this? Yeah, it's a really interesting question. This and the sort of super dollar story—they were these hundred dollar bills. These fakes were called the super dollars—is a really interesting one. They start popping up in the nineties, and they a conspicuous number of them pop up in the hands of North Korean diplomats overseas. Now, the North Koreans' explanation to that is, well, look, we use cash. We're often excluded from banks and bank accounts, so we carry a lot of cash. And, you know, unsurprisingly, we end up with some fake bills every now and again. The problem is, they ended up with so many fake bills so often it's hard not to think that they were very intimately connected with whoever was creating these hundred dollar bills. And certainly, the accusation from the US is that it was North Korea who was printing these these fake Benjamins, the hundred dollars. Now, North Korea has an intaglio printer which prints its own currency, the one, um, and so it's not unfeasible they could have used that press to print fake uh, hundred dollar notes. You also, though, need to get the paper right, you've got to have the right paper because it's a very particular so cotton linen mix that's in the $100 bill. So you've got to get the right paper. You've got to get the right ink, and there's this color-changing ink on the $100 bills that sort of changes as you turn it in the light. Again, the optical variable ink, um, North Korea managed to, to to get hold of supplies of that to use on its own currency. And so the the accusations that North Korea sort of used all of its government systems for creating currency and subverted them to create these fake $100 bills. Um, and it's an absolutely incredible story of, uh, an FBI agent called Bob Hamer who's a f- fascinating character who's undercover and he gets pulled in to try and break open this counterfeiting gang who are importing these 100 dollar notes into the US so they set up a fake wedding to invite all of these suspects along and uh, instead of get, they get in a limo in their tuxedos and instead of going to the wedding they get pulled in by the FBI <laughs> and arrested it's an absolutely astonishing story and i think actually i think that that 100 dollar bill story is worth a podcast in itself yeah, so it's an incredible. Way. I mean, if you, if you, if you, I mean, a number of the stories
0: in your book, if you propose them as a, you know, the plot of a film, they'd be, they'd be kind of. <laughs> rubbish by some people and and they and they really did take place so uh well, we, I'm are, sure we are there's, there's lots to come up come
1: you know a lot more stories to come out of this slight slight spoiler alert, but we have actually been approached by a drama production company who i think are interested in turning the lazarus heist into a into a film or a series so fingers crossed that'll happen i'd love to see oh, it. yeah i would love John. to see it have you I, I mean maybe this is a stupid question
0: but have you had any feedback you know directly or indirectly from the people you're writing about, you know, do you ever do you ever sense that they're reading what you write and or listening to what you say and oh thinking oh he's got that you know he's he's done a good job telling that story or are they are they uh, as I guess uh, kind of uh, enigmatic and behind the scenes and uh, don't talk to anybody?
1: Yeah, we've we've um somebody did raise the prospect of whether Kim Jong Un himself has actually been alerted to the podcast and possibly the book, which is a slightly scary thought. I mean, it's a, <laughs> the feasible answer is yeah yeah maybe it's yes I don't know I mean look. You know, well, If you're listening, Kim, uh, it's a pretty impressive job uh, you've been, been up to. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, he's managed, yeah, he's managed to last 10 years and not get bumped off yet. So that's that's pretty impressive. Look, we did get a response from the North Korean government uh, to the podcast. Um, didn't get one for the book. Did ask them for a response, but didn't get one. The North Koreans said, look, this is a smear campaign. These accusations are a smear campaign by the U- United States government. Um, And it is worth noting, the US government is still at war with North Korea. There's a truce declared, but they never ended the war. Um, And a lot of the accusations are coming out of the US government. And a lot of the documents that we rely on are US government documents. A lot of the documentation around Bangladesh Bank, for example, the hacking of that institution, Sony Pictures Entertainment, hack in 2014, the WannaCry cyber attack in 2017. Uh, Lots of the research material for this comes out of the US government. So, you know, the the North Koreans have a, a certain amount of sort of ability to argue that this is just a smear campaign by the US government. Um, and they, they say they're not connected with any of these hacks. However, there's also now huge swathes of sort of independent research by various tech security companies that's supporting this. Um, uh, and there are, there are just so many fingerprints in so many places that for the North Koreans to deny it, simply to say, oh, it's a smear campaign. That's not good enough. They need to actually engage with the evidence and start sort of arguing back if they're going to really uh, refute these allegations.
0: Right, so the security researchers can can look at what you know what happened, and they there are certain kind of fingerprints in the code that suggest that a certain group was involved, and 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 that's how it works, presumably.
1: Yes, exactly. Yes, yeah. so they're they're looking for there's various ways security companies sort of attribute these things, and often it's built one on top of the other. So, for example, in 2013, there were a series of ta- of attacks targeting institutions in Seoul, the capital of South Korea. Uh, that became known as the Dark Soul Attacks. Um, After that, the same viruses got used again, very similar viruses got used in the Sony attack and similar methodology, uh, similar graphics were used in the sort of attack, you know, uh, systems that they used. And so the tech security companies will say, well, hang on, this 2013 attack against Seoul in South Korea, we're we're marking that as North Korean. So when the same viruses get used later on, we are assuming then that they're North Korean. There's also aspects of the code, IP addresses, for example, in North Korea will get used to access certain systems that are then used to compromise victims and to target and to hack into people. So there's there's multiple different sort of senses, uh, ways that tech security companies can attribute these attacks. They do sometimes, though, have to work really hard. I mean, there's, there's a thing which we're covering again for season two in the podcast, which is um, uh, called Olympic Destroyer, which targeted the Winter Olympics uh, in South Korea in 2018, Um, there was a cyber attack on the Olympic Games. And... Lots of pink fingers were pointed in lots of different directions, including uh, at North Korea, because there were elements of the code that looked North Korean. In the end, the attribution seems to be towards Russia, the Russian Federation, for that attack. But but the false flags that went around it to try and bemuse and perplex the cybersecurity researchers were really interesting. So, mm. again, always worth sort of looking at these accusations and sort of digging in, trying to work out quite how much evidence there is behind them, because there can be false flags.
0: Right. Uh, it's a, a topic in itself. Let's turn to cryptocurrency and, and its role in, you know, has, have, has has the invention of cryptocurrency in the last 13 years since Bitcoin um, appeared, has that made the job of people like North Korean hackers easier?
1: Um, uh, yes. The, the, there's a hesitation in my voice because there's, there's a bit of nuance to this. But generally speaking, you know, the invention of cryptocurrency um, f- for all the radical measures it's 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 made and for all the good that it's done and, and it's certainly opened up a whole new sort of vista, I think, in finance. It has also, it's fair to say, enabled a massive amount of, of criminality. You know to go back to the money laundering point, you know, one thing criminals have always struggled with is taking their profits, moving them, realizing them, and divorcing them from the from the the criminality. Cryptocurrency has, has helped massively with that. It, it's it's been the currency of choice on dark web crime sites, drug sites for years. Um, and now is starting to be the, uh, become one of the targets for computer hackers as well, not just to sort of spirit their profits away from other crimes, but they're actually attacking the cryptocurrency industry itself and stealing uh, vast amounts. So, so yes, it has been a huge boon for them. However, and um, we'll get onto this, I think, uh, in the course of the conversation, it's also massively traceable. Um, as, as your listeners will well know, cryptocurrency, what undergirds the cryptocurrency system is the traceability of it, the fact that there's an open third-party ledger of all the transactions. And of course, if you're trying to track down criminals, that open ledger can be massively beneficial, um, particularly when it comes to currencies like Bitcoin that that, that still operate that open ledger system. Um, so yes, it's been a huge boon, but tracing companies and anti-money laundering people are, are, are on the case and are getting much better and much faster at tracing back and clawing back uh, amounts of money. I mean, you could look at the attack on Colonial Pipeline in the US, the ransomware attack, where you know they managed to get back a lot of the money because they were very, very fast and very, very good at tracing it. Right, but I mean compared to the Bank of Bangladesh story,
0: where you, you were talking about people sitting in casinos in Manila for for weeks on end trying to you know, launder the money very slowly using cash and and, uh, and gambling chips in crypto, you can do it you know very quickly. You can swap from Bitcoin into another crypto, then another one, and then go through a mixer and then back again. It's I mean, there are I mean, there's some very clever people uh, investigating this, but it's still Presumably, much easier for the for the hackers to to make things disappear.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And what's interesting is the year after the Bangladesh bank job uh, in twenty seventeen, we saw the WannaCry cyber attack, which to we will well remember, went around the world, disproportionately hit the NHS in the UK, <clears throat> shot down some emergency departments. You know, incredible hack. Uh, what's interesting? This was the hack that was
0: was uh, was uh, was stopped by uh, by a, a, a UK based. <laughs> hacker also sitting in his bedroom who spotted that you could uh, disable the website used to perpetrate the
1: hack. Exactly right. Yeah. Marcus Hutchins was the security researcher in the UK who not by accident, but certainly by a, by a considerable amount of luck managed to discover the off switch for the WannaCry cyber attack and brought the thing to a halt um, within 24 hours of it breaking out. But it did in that 24 hours made a huge amount of mayhem. It went fully around the world and, and caused a lot, a lot of problems. The money from that ransomware attack some people did pay the ransom. <clears throat> they didn't get their documents back. And the this, this classic ransomware attack, you scramble the files and charge a ransom to give, give the files back. In this case, if you paid the ransom, you didn't get your files back. But what's interesting is the money paid to those ransomware wallets in the WannaCry attack sat there for months untouched. And of course, everybody's looking at these wallets thinking, okay, when that money moves, we're going to try and trace it to work out you know who's behind this. August 2017, so a few months after the, the, the WannaCry outbreak, the money suddenly moves and everybody's trying to work out where it goes. I, I was trying to trace it, everybody's trying to trace it. That money disappears into a cryptocurrency wallet address that's handling millions and millions of dollars. That cryptocurrency wallet address belongs to a company called HitBTC, who are an Eastern Europe-based cryptocurrency exchange. And then it's gone. As far as I'm aware, nobody has any idea where it went, went after that. I've contacted HitBTC to ask them. They haven't responded to my queries. I don't know whether law enforcement's been in touch with them. But that money just disappears into the sort of maw of, um, of of HitBTC's wallet, and then it's gone. Now, I think what the North Koreans, because it's them who's blamed for the WannaCry cyber attack, I think what the North Koreans learned from that is, hey, compared to the year we spent lining up the money laundering networks for Bangladesh Bank, this is a, this is a dream. We can just launder this money in, in, in a few hours. I think that's what they learned, and I think that was a major um, factor in North Koreans and, in fairness, other cybercrime groups going after cryptocurrency. The, the speed and ease with which you can launder it is something they learned, I think, on that one. But I t- to, to what extent do you think that stealing money, a you know,
0: financial objective, was was the was the uh, the ultimate goal of the people conducting the hack? Were they doing it to get the money, or were they doing it as a kind of hint at what
1: kind of uh, warfare yeah. they could conduct if they if they if they wanted to it's, it's a very good question um i mean financially you could look at one as, as an absolute failure i mean it made i think even when bitcoin became very valuable it, it still only made a million dollars which frankly i'd quite like a million dollars but by cybercrime standards that is that is an absolute failure um you know normal good ransomware c- campaigns profits run into the hundreds of millions um however i'd make a couple of points it, it's The theory with WannaCry is that this was a virus that was leaked too soon. It had been developed in a lab and was accidentally leaked. Um, There's various things that point to that. One of which is, as we've discussed, there was an off switch embedded in the virus, which was quite easy to activate. Now, as a virus maker... um, You want to have an off switch when your virus is in the lab. You want to have effectively the antidote in case you accidentally release the virus in your own lab and infect everybody. You've got to have the off switch, the antidote. Um, But before you unleash it in the wild, you would take that off switch out of the code. You don't want to release a a virus into the wild. It's got an easy off switch, so you, you would delete that. So there's various bits of the WannaCry attack that make it look as though this was leaked too soon. So had the people who were developing it waited and got it right and finished it off, they might have made a huge amount more money if they'd unleashed the sort of final finished version of it. Uh, So that's one factor to bear in mind. But you're right, this could equally have been the WannaCry cyber attack, uh, an effort to intimidate the rest of the world. One of the things North Korea is constantly trying to do, uh, and this happens through its nuclear weapons program as well, is to make the world aware that North Korea was a threat and to keep North Korea in people's minds. Well, the WannaCry cyber attack certainly did that. I mean, you had then Prime Minister Theresa May talking about ransomware, which I think was a first a first for British Prime Minister, maybe not the last. Um, so it really did put put this on the radar. So I, I don't know. It might have been a financially motivated campaign initially, but certainly in terms of, of in, in, impact and reputation management, it did a great job for the North Koreans. Yeah. Uh,
0: you know, on, on a scale of 1 to 10, how worried do you think the people running, I don't know, the global... Cybersecurity um, systems and the global financial system are about the kinds of attacks you've been describing in your book
1: i think they're very wide. um i mean we spoke with for the podcast to a, a u.s senator who made a very good point she said look the global markets run on trust you, you know we think they run on money but actually they run on trust you need to trust that when you make that trade the person is going to come through with the the products or the services that you've that you've acquired you need to trust that when you send your money to somebody they are going to receive it uh, actually it's interesting I'm in cryptocurrency and the, the third-party ledger is an effort to build trust isn't it in cryptocurrency well financial markets they also built on on trust and financial institutions are built on trust as soon as you have people screwing with that system manipulating swift breaking into cryptocurrency companies and changing the protocols to siphon off money you know making atms uh, systems Uh, create havoc around the world as soon as you start interfering with those things people's trust in financial institutions starts to to potentially ebb away and that's why bangladesh bank is an interesting example i mean trust in government institutions and national institutions in bangladesh is low they have a, a deep skepticism of the government's ability to get stuff right and not screw it up and the hack on bangladesh bank did not help that one iota. People in Bangladesh were appalled by it, angered by it, and they felt that the bank had let them down and lost their money. So it's not just trust in sort of the, the, the abstract concepts of the, you know, the SWIFT system, et cetera. It's trust in a financial institution directly that starts to ebb away when these hacks happen. So I think there's a huge amount of concern about this uh, around the world. In, right. in both so, so government so tru- and security
0: companies. Yeah, so trust in payment systems, trust in the value of individual currencies, these could all be subverted uh, possibly by by clever attackers.
1: Yeah exactly right exactly right
0: and i, and I guess with uh, the kind of the current global situation the risks of more of this kind of asymmetric warfare are, are probably rising
1: mm. yeah exactly right i mean you know j- during the, the the coronavirus period um that we've just been through obviously you know people stopped taking cash everything all transactions became card based transactions uh, with the yeah. exception of my local hairdresser who obstinately took cash throughout the whole thing um uh, but generally speaking we switched to, to to electronic payments um online banking took off because of course bank branches were closed people couldn't get out so there's been a huge a step change in people's sort of digital engagement with finance you know the the people who, who weren't already digitally engaged with finance during covid they had to get up to speed and do that commensurately we saw you know hacks breaking out all over the place we saw hackers inevitably using COVID as their sort of lure to get people to fall for their tricks and fall for their frauds. Um, And so, as we get deeper into these these situations where we're more digitally engaged, it just gives the hackers a larger attack surface to go after.
0: Right. So, digital payments have made our lives in some ways more convenient, but they've also made the whole system more vulnerable.
1: Yeah. And this is the thing. It's the age-old lesson of security. The Lesson one, really, of security is convenience is the enemy of security. Everything, well, almost everything that technology does to make things more convenient introduces security vulnerabilities and problems. Um, you know, the, the most secure phone you can have is the one where you've taken the battery out, wrapped it in tinfoil and put it in the freezer. But but you can't use your it phone. The,
0: or dropped it in the sea, as, uh, as I've you know, seen recently. But, oh, yes. Yeah, <laughs> of course.
1: Yeah, I dropped it in the sea. Yeah. But of course, so, you know, that's massively secu- inconvenient, but it's also massively secure Uh, you know somewhere on that spectrum is where we all need to sit and I think we're constantly going back and forth along that spectrum of convenience versus security Jeff thank you very
0: much for taking the time to talk to me it's been a fascinating chat and I can you know really recommend your book it's a brilliant read Uh, I look forward to following your work on your new podcast
1: thanks for that Paul really appreciate it thanks for listening to this
0: episode of the new money review podcast the future of money in 30 minutes if you enjoyed the podcast Please like it, share it or tell a friend about it. At our website newmoneyreview.com you can also sign up to our newsletter which will keep you informed of all New Money Review articles and podcasts. If you'd like to support our work you can do so via Patreon. Details of how to do this are on the homepage of our website. Finally, please join us soon for our next episode.